My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hello and welcome to She Starts It with Angelica Malin, the podcast that celebrates incredible, inspiring women who are at the top of their industries, from food to fashion, law to politics. This is a podcast about celebrating female entrepreneurship, power and potential, exploring what it really takes to be a trailblazer in today's world. I'm your host, entrepreneur and journalist Angelica Malin, and every week I'll be asking a new guest for their three career turning points and answering the question we've all wondered at some point, how did she start it? She Starts It with Angelica Malin is kindly sponsored by Bloom and Wild. If you're like me and you love having fresh flowers around you while you're relaxing at home, but I hate having to carry them around with me all day, and who's ever home long enough to arrange a delivery anymore? Bloom and Wild have got us covered. They're the UK's top-rated online florist, and they deliver right to your letterbox. So you can get fresh buds ready to flower, they can last up to 10 days, and you don't even have to worry about being home for the delivery. They'll give you £10 off your first order with the code SHE. Straight and simple, S-H-E. They offer free next day delivery up to 10pm. They ship across the UK, France and Germany, so they've got you covered. So head on over to blueandwild.com, use the offer code SHE so they know I sent you, and treat yourself. Joanna Hardy is a criminal barrister and is ranked in the Legal 500 as a leading junior in general crime. Joanna has been instructed as sole counsel in relation to allegations of attempted murder, rape, sexual assault and allegations of serious violence, including gang-related incidents. Joanna came to the bar following a solid academic background. She read law at King's College London, where she graduated with first-class honours. She was awarded a postgraduate scholarship to read for her LLM Masters of Law, graduating with distinction. She was also the recipient of the Harmsworth Scholarship from Middle Temple. Wow, what a career biography. I think that's the longest one I've ever read out. It sounds like my mum wrote that. <laughs> did, maybe, maybe she did. Maybe, maybe. she's out of hand. <laughs> How does it feel when you hear that back? Do you feel proud of that? Um, I do feel proud of that, yeah. I think that every single little milestone you do, um, you, you do feel proud of, particularly in this job, because each one is hard fought. Um, but yeah, a bit embarrassing when you suddenly hear them read out. <laughs> <laughs> to me, you seem incredibly young to be having a biography that long. I may I ask how old you are? Of course you can. I'm 32, just. I was 32 a few weeks ago. So you're pretty you're pretty high up for someone of that age. A lot of my contemporaries I consider to be as of equal standing as I am at the bar. So I don't know about that, but I've been very lucky, I think. Tell me about law. How did you always know you wanted to be a lawyer? So I grew up in a family where my father was a police officer. So law and order was sort of flavour of the day. It's what we talk about over the dinner table. So I think I had an interest in the human stories of crime and it was never a boring house and never boring stories that we had. He banned me from being a police officer. He really? wasn't allowed to do that. And I was quite a geek at school. I was a bit of a dork and I loved academia and I fell in love with law. I loved studying law, undergrad and at postgrad. 
but I'm also quite a nosy person. I'm a bit obsessed about other human beings and about their stories. And if you combine being a geek with law, with human <laughs> stories, there's only really one job to do, and I'm very lucky to do it. So you knew, what age did you know that was the career you were going to pursue? I think I knew that I'd be involved in law somehow when I was doing my GCSEs and my A-levels. I think I realised the bar was for me when I was at university and I started to see my contemporaries drifting towards commercial law and to the city. And I realised that a desk and a boss and a real structure wasn't really for me. And this career gives me real flexibility because we're self-employed and it combines everything that I adore. So quite challenging um, legal tests and legal material, but a real human side to the job as well. So it was that kind of human side that drew, drew you into it? Definitely. Yeah, I adore it. Every case I pick up, I can't wait to read mm. what's happened, how we can make it better um, and what we can do to, to fix. It's amazing to have that passion and enthusiasm for it. That's, I feel like that's a really lucky thing to love what you do in that way. Yeah, if I could afford to do it for free, I would. <laughs> and I think if you can say that about any job, you're very lucky. Really? So I, I love it. Every day I wake up and it's a different day. It's a different story. It's a different set of challenges. And it's fantastic. What are some of the more general challenges for being in the bar versus being a corporate lawyer in the city? I think being self-employed has its challenges. You have to be a self-starter. You have to be a go-getter. You have to really motivate yourself. So I think if you don't have that HR department or that boss or those targets, you have to really motivate yourself. And some people find that quite difficult. Mm. I quite like that. I quite like managing my own time. Mm. I think that it can be a lonely profession if you're not careful. Uh, we work in chambers, so traditionally we'd all go in after court and you'd see your colleagues. But since digital working has come in, no one has any need to go into the office. Everything is delivered by email. So it can be quite isolating if you're not careful. Mm. So you have to be really uh, careful about making an effort to see your colleagues and to see your contemporaries and to join in, really. Mm. Yeah, you don't have that kind of community side of it anymore. No, it's really, really drifting away. Really? People are making real efforts. So in my chambers, we've started having more social occasions that we organise. People come in, help the juniors. It's how they learn, by speaking to more senior people in, in chambers. Mm. So they're, they're doing a really stellar job of joining in and making everybody come into chambers. And, and we organise lectures and concentrate people's focus after work on events so it is lovely but you do have to be careful you have to be careful with it especially the nature of the work if you're dealing with a case with particularly heavy subject matter and you're feeling a bit isolated that can be really quite hard it can be I mean I always say that we're in the business of human misery if you're seeing a criminal barrister it's usually because things have gone wrong mm. and sometimes they've gone quite wrong indeed and if you're prosecuting a particularly sensitive case or you're defending a particularly difficult case it can be heavy going on yourself at the end of the day. Mm, yeah, things have gone very wrong if that's where you're, yeah. where you're at. So I ask all of my guests in advance to tell me three turning points in their career or three moments that really stand out when they look back on their careers. So, uh, Joanna, could you tell me your first kind of clear moment that you can remember thinking, OK, this is something? Yes, um, my first ever case as a barrister so you go through all your academic training you go through all your practical training then you have six months shadowing and it seems endless and then all of a sudden you've got your first case and your first client 
And my first case was at Brent Magistrates Court, which is not a glamorous court. It is on a dual carriageway opposite a petrol station. And I remember I had a new suit, I had a new pen, I had a new laptop. And I thought I was really ready Mm. to do this job. I thought I knew everything. I think I arrived quite early so I could tell everybody in sight that I was the barrister. I was here. Um, And then I met my client and I just remember her story. And I remember particularly that she was exactly my age. And... I obviously can't say too much about her story for various confidentiality reasons, but but it was a sad story and it involved drugs, it involved her losing her children into the care system, it involved her being imprisoned, it involved poverty, it involved prostitution, it involved an enormously sad human story. And I remember thinking to myself that my new suit started to feel a bit silly and mm. all of my law degree, my master's, my training, nothing really prepared me for the human being that was sitting in front of me. And and I think that that was a real turning point for me when I realised actually this job is only 10% the formal stuff and it's 90% being able to engage with other human beings. Mm, You felt almost protected by this external stuff that you put on, but actually it was the the subject matter. Yeah, and this job does deliver just emotional gut punches every day Mm. and you have to be resilient but kind And it's a real skill set that we don't necessarily teach at law school. We don't necessarily Mm. learn when we're doing exams or coursework or dissertations. But it's something that you you really need, particularly in this job, but I think in in a lot of jobs. Yeah. And how do you build up that emotional resilience? Do you find that you can hang the day up when you get in after work or does it stay with you? So ordinarily, I've become quite good at compartmentalizing my life so when I'm at work I'm 100% in my case I'll know every detail about every text message or every frame of the CCTV or every word of the witness statements I'll just be completely immersed in it but as soon as I get home and I shut the door I try my best to leave it there I think for two main reasons reason number one I think you're a better barrister if you're looking after yourself before you look after others and reason number two I think that it's slightly unhealthy to carry around people's trauma with you every day. And if every case we do, we then carry a little bit of that case with us into the next one. I think that we become quite hard. Mm. And I think it's a shame in this job if you become hardened to some of the very sad material that we see. I I quite like to, I hope I keep a soft edge sometimes. Yeah. Do you think that's one of the differences of being a female barrister? No. I think that's one of the areas actually where my male colleagues and I share Everyone has their own way of coping with difficult material, with difficult cases. But I think anyone who's practising full-time at the criminal bar has mastered somehow and to some extent the ability to look after their own well-being Mm. and their clients. Mm. We have some fantastic organisations at the bar, so well-being initiatives. And it's quite a modern concept, well-being and looking after ourselves. And the bar is seen as quite a traditional profession, but I think we're actually quite good at it. Mm. And people tend to ask for help if they need it. The Bar Council have a helpline if people are really struggling. And there's quite an informal structure in chambers with more senior barristers that you can always turn to. So on the whole, touch wood, it's a a good time. Have there ever been moments in your career where you felt too affected by something or you felt like I can't really cope with this? Definitely. I've definitely walked away from some cases at the end and thought I need a break. Mm. Um, And the joy of being self-employed is that you can usually take one. You can, yeah. I often think of when you get on the aeroplane and they say you should fix your oxygen mask before helping someone else. I think that's quite a good analogy for my job and lots of jobs as well, doctors, teachers. 
that you should really make sure that you're on steady ground before mm. you start helping others. Yeah, putting yourself first and that. And because you're dealing with people's lives, you know, exactly. so you have to be there and present. Mm. And then what was your second um, incident that you, you'd like to discuss? About five years into my career, I moved chambers. So what that means in effect would be like moving companies for, for another um, profession. And... The bar is a very small group of people. Everyone knows each other. And applying to move can be controversial and it can be quite difficult because you have personal relationships with the chambers where you've trained and the gossip circuit, if they get wind of it and you don't get into the new place, mm. um, it can make you feel quite vulnerable and you have to be quite brave. And I think it's probably the first example of when I felt brave in this job and, and I really admired the set where I am now. We've got a lot of female leaders, a lot of female silks, and I saw it as a chambers where I really wanted to be. Um, I saw some of the barristers there as just absolute stars. So if I was in court and they were in the hearing after mine, I'd cheekily stay in the public gallery and watch them and just Mm. think I'd love to work there. I'd love to work with these people. And it took a lot to pluck up the courage to to do that Mm. and to just put in the application and have a try. And luckily for me, fortunately for me, they were happy to have me. But I think that it just showed me that you have to be willing sometimes to disrupt your own status quo. Mm. I think that our generation can be we're quite a generation of overachievers, I think. We all have done well at school. We've all come to university. We've all got quite good jobs. And it's quite easy to just then sit back. And I think sometimes you've got to keep to pushing on. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Did, did people get wind when you'd applied that that was happening? Or did you keep it no. secret? No. So I kept it a complete secret. I didn't tell anybody. And actually, the chambers I applied to and the chambers I applied from actually were very, very good with having walls of, of silence. So actually, uh, it ended up, I was quite protected mm. um, by that application. But you're still nervous that people might talk about you or you might fall down and fail. And I think that sometimes, um, particularly as a young person in quite a difficult profession, you can be quite scared of failure. And it was quite liberating to think, doesn't matter. Mm. The worst they can say is no. Yeah, and that's how you've got to put yourself <laughs> Have a out try. There. Exactly. Well, it's choosing courage over comfort, isn't it? And that's the challenging thing. Definitely. That's a really nice phrase for it. Was it important to you to have other female leaders? Were you looking for someone who perhaps was a bit more senior than you that was a woman? Definitely. In my old chambers, my head of chambers was um, a female barrister and a fantastic one at that. And she had trained me um, and she was wonderful. And and she is a fantastic, fantastic advocate and role model. Uh, Where I am now is just a much bigger chambers. um, Mm. And the work available to me is different. And the areas I can work in are more diverse. Mm. Uh, Since I've been there, we have had so many female silks appointed and a lot of females have gone to the bench. They've become judges. So it just feels like I'm really in an environment that encourages is women, particularly young women, to grow. So it's lovely. That's amazing. Mm. And what was your third turning point in your career? So the third turning point in my career was when I discovered mentoring. I was quite sniffy about mentoring. I saw it as a bit like matchmaking. I thought, how on earth can you just pair a senior woman with a junior woman and expect them to hit it off and for this all to work really well? Um, And I was completely wrong about that. I think it's such a fantastic idea, particularly in a very traditional profession where women can get a little bit lost, particularly women like me from a background that that perhaps is considered non-traditional for the bar. I was so lucky to find quite organically mentors, so I didn't do it through a formal mentoring programme. And... I'm so lucky now I've got a judge at the Old Bailey, a female judge at the Old Bailey who sits at the Central Criminal Court every day and she is just fantastic and she, I can ignore her for months if I don't need any mentoring but the second I need any help with anything or I need encouragement or advice, she's just there. Um, 
And it's made me become a mentor. So I've signed up to quite a formal mentoring program in Chambers and I have a younger woman in Chambers who I am her official mentor. And we speak probably once, twice a week about quite serious issues or about quite light issues. And you get so much out of it. You know, you see them developing and she's a tremendous advocate and you become quite proud of of Mm. them. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards... Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So I think that that really changed my viewpoint of a profession that I considered to be quite formal um, into quite a warm profession. It showed a real a warm side of uh, other people who were doing the job that, that I wanted to do and reaching places where I thought I perhaps couldn't reach. Do you think it's more warm than it is competitive? It depends. It's a self-employed profession. And so by definition, it, it is competitive. Um, there's a finite amount of work and there's a certain number of barristers and you live or die by your quality. And I think that's a real mm-hmm. asset of the profession. Um, if you're not good, you probably won't get work. If you are and you work hard, you'll sail. And so there is a competitive edge to it. But the bar is one of the friendliest professions I've ever encountered. Really? Um, yeah, there's a real camaraderie to it. Everyone has a fantastic sense of humour. Everyone tends to be supportive. And it, it's a lovely, lovely group of people. It tends to attract real characters, as you'd expect. People yeah. that want to stand up in court all day it tends to be quite unusual people. <laughs> so real characters and... Yeah, it's a, ple- it's a real pleasure to work with. This is really changing my opinion of the industry, and I mean, I don't, I don't know the legal world that well, but I always imagined that it was quite competitive, quite hard, and it. I don't know. It sounds like a lot more of a, a warm place than mm. uh, what you're describing, and one that cares more about mental well-being and everything like that. It's not what I would have imagined. Yeah, it's not what I imagined um, when I joined it, and. Uh, It must be said in the last few years, um, women's organisations at the bar have sprung up and really flourished. Wellbeing organisations have really flourished and they're really embracing it and good on them because for a profession where we wear wigs every day and gowns every day and everyone is a bit curious about what 
what a peculiar job where you dress up every day and argue in these archaic courtrooms <laughs> and use these silly Latin words. I think good on them for being modern and for embracing all of those things which modern companies and slick city firms have been doing for a while. And, and I think it's really impressive. Does it sometimes feel like you're stepping back in time when you go to work? It does, yes. If you go into some of the old courtrooms at the Old Bailey or in a London Crown Court, it's like stepping back into time. And they're beautiful, some of them, beautiful buildings. And it's quite an inspiring place to work. You know, if you're prosecuting a serious crime, it, it can inspire you. And if you're defending somebody who deserves a shout and, and really deserves representation, it's nice to be in those environments. Yeah. Some of the courtrooms are horrible. They are like portaloos <laughs> with no windows and bruise block walls. And that's all part of the underfunding of the criminal justice system, mm. which is a whole other issue. But some of them are less inspiring. And talk to me about some of the less positive things in the law industry. So discrimination, sexism. I know that you've had quite a lot of press attention for some yes. of the comments you've made. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. So I sparked a bit of a national debate about retention of women in the workplace, mainly my workplace, which is the criminal bar. That was prompted by the Criminal Bar Association, which is our overriding association to which most of us belong, revealing statistics about women leaving the bar. So this isn't a problem of women not joining. For about 17 years now, the incoming ratio has been 50-50, roughly, mm. women, which is great. But after a certain number of years, women start to leave and they don't come back. Mm. So the percentage of female QCs is only about 15%. Where do all those women go, is my question. And I see them leaving all the time. So I tweeted about that. I tweeted a, a thread and it just went viral. It ended up in all the newspapers and on lots of the daytime talk radio shows. And the points that I was making were about working conditions. So hours can be quite punishing for women, particularly if you've got caregiving roles, so children or elderly parents that need uh, need your time. Working hours can be quite antisocial for that. Secondly, I was speaking about women encouraging women. So some of the organisations I've been speaking about, Women in Criminal Law, Women in Law UK and some of the Bar Council initiatives, really to women to promote other women. Mm. Um, And part of that, I mentioned sexism at the bar, which is what caught everybody's attention because I told barristers not to behave like they're on a stag do, Um, which is a nice soundbite for the media, but it was actually a very small part of what I was trying to say. Um, And that's that sometimes when male barristers are in quite male-heavy cases and um, it's an adversarial system, is quite highly charged. Um, They are in a minority, thankfully. Mm. But occasionally, uh, traditional female roles come into play. So you find yourself as the female advocate taking the notes of a conference. And you think, why am I taking the notes? I'm qualified to run the conference. Or fetching the coffee run. Um, Sometimes, because you're the only woman in a case, you find that sometimes people forget your name because they don't need to know your name because you're the only girl in the room. Um, And so I was pointing out that that type of behaviour... coupled with the other pressures that women have at the bar might be playing its part as well. Mm, Interesting. And what was the general response to that? So it was all over the press. Were people behind you or were they arguing against you? So I was, when it first hit, it was on the front page of a big London newspaper. I was actually in court. I was defending in quite a serious child cruelty case. So I'd had quite a long day. Um, And to see my face on the front page of the Evening Standard (laughs) um, wasn't um, marvellous. And I was very frightened. I thought women that speak out about this type of thing get trashed. And I was completely wrong. I was so surprised and bowled over by the support. Um, And I still am so touched by it. The chair of the bar came out in support. Um, The chair of the Criminal Bar Association came out in support. Um, It it, it was just 
overwhelmingly positive and I'm so grateful for that because I think 10 years ago it wouldn't have been no it would have been a different yeah. different circumstance what are some of the changes that you would like to see for uh, female lawyers and female barristers in the industry what do you think would make it better and retain them um, so we tend to start court at 10am yeah. and some of your listeners might think I wish I could start my job at 10am I start my job at 7am um, that doesn't mean that we start work at 10am mm. usually you have an hours conference with your client so that means 9am Usually there's an hour's prep before that, so 8am. And we work at courts all over the country. You know, tomorrow I could be in court in Truro or in Cardiff or in Mm. Manchester or in Mm. Norwich. You have to factor in the travel time. Um, Courts have started sitting earlier and earlier. So if you have a court sitting at 9.30 regularly, um, you may have a woman who needs to leave her home at 6 or 6.30. And if that woman has a child and the nursery doesn't open until 8, they're not going to be able to do that case. Mm. So I think... um, Having court hours that can accommodate caregivers and primary caregivers will help women at the bar. It will help male caregivers at the bar. I know many male barristers who are sole carers or primary carers for children. Mm. Um, It would help jurors and witnesses and everybody. So I think the working hours, our obsession with squeezing every minute out of the working day, I think can be counterproductive. Um, I think that chambers should have really strong mentoring policies, maternity policies, fair allocation of work. I'm very lucky to have a chambers that supports all of those Mm. things. I think that women who've made it, women who are at the very top of their profession, um, the ones that look back and lend a hand, I think, are the best people. Mm. And fortunately, there are lots of those doing that. Mm. Uh, So I just think that a combination of quite easy steps can be taken to really help turn the tide Uh, I just think also calling out the problem, which I hope I did, probably in quite a modern way for quite a traditional (laughs) profession, um, can help. And it seemed to spark a debate. So, um, Well, it's frustrating when it's what is basically quite simple things that could change and would have a huge impact. It's not like, you know, companies where they have to make massive changes. It's just small things like changing the hours, which I know is logistically a challenge, but, you know, it's it's doable. Have you found the profession challenging for your personal life? Um. There are compromises to be made with a job like mine. Mm. Um, If I receive a case at 4pm that has six hours of work that needs doing and I've organised to go for dinner or I've organised to see my friends, I have to cancel. Mm. And my friends and my partner and my parents, my family have all got quite used to me having last minute, you know, panics and saying, look, I just can't come. I've got to prioritise this case. Mm. Uh, In terms of flexibility though it's an excellent job for that because you're self-employed so it it swings and roundabouts as with I'm sure with many jobs. So what advice would you give uh, those thinking about pursuing a career in law aspirational young lawyers what would you say to them? I would say to them first and foremost find a hinterland that isn't law and that might be your friends it might be a partner it might be a pet I bought a dog um, anything that's not law because you need to turn your brain off in this job you need to really switch off and relax and that makes you a much better lawyer so my main advice I, I speak quite a lot to students and to aspiring barristers and I think they always expect me to say something about the job or how to prepare cases and I always end up telling them to buy a dog or to go and join a gym or join a dance just class just anything but just something else um, sometimes and, and I I fell into this trap when I first joined the bar. You end up being friends with barristers, you end up dating barristers, you end up talking to barristers, and you end up eating, sleeping, and living <laughs> being a barrister. And that's not healthy because our audience, our primary audience, are jurors, mm-hmm. and they're 
drawn from society. And our clients primarily are people um, from a whole wide variety of backgrounds. And if you're prosecuting, you're representing society as a whole. And it's important that you keep your feet um, mm. in your life before you came to the bar. Uh, I struggled for a long, long time to see that everything that had shaped me before I came to the bar was actually so important. And instead of trying to shake it off um, and pretending, you know, or being ashamed that I'd been to a state school or that at the weekend I like to go and do dance classes or go to nightclubs with my friends, actually all of those experiences are what makes me a good advocate in court because mm. the jury listen to me and they think, actually, yeah, she knows what it sounds like to be in a taxi queue outside a nightclub at 3am or <laughs> she knows what it's like to get on the night bus and when people start throwing things and then it all kicks off. You can you can use experiences that you never thought were useful mm. um, to really make yourself a better advocate. Mm. You actually connect with the real world more. Definitely. And I think everyone at the criminal bar is, is a character and brings in their unique you know, um, stance on whatever background they have. But it took me a while to be confident with mine and to mm. use it positively. Was it a challenge coming from a state school? Yes, I think it was. Um, I hope that we're making it easier. I'm involved quite heavily in social mobility at the bar. So I sit on the social mobility committee of the Criminal Bar Association um, for students who perhaps have come to the bar without independent means. They might need really small help. They might need us to buy their textbook for the year, which can be hundreds of pounds, or to help them buy a laptop so they can work at the very beginning. Um, I'm also involved in the Kalisha Trust. Uh, We're doing an internship where kids from an inner city state school have the opportunity to be an intern with an old Bailey judge. And these are opportunities that money and connections can't buy anybody. Um, So I'm quite heavily involved in paving the way for people behind me. Um, But the criminal bar, Touchwood, is a welcoming, diverse place. I don't think anyone is not getting in because of their education now. Mm. I think that it really is seen as um, a level playing field. But I came to the bar in 2010. Um, I remember going to bar school and just meeting people who, with whom I couldn't relate. Um, and I think that it's taken me a long time to reconcile with myself the fact that I should be really proud of where I've come from and use it positively. Mm. And I hope that kids coming through can, can do that. And I hope that some of the initiatives that we're all now heavily involved in are really helping them. It's a similar experience to when you go to university and you'd often arrive and it's like all the boarding school kids know each other and you arrive and you're like, oh, everyone knows each other and that's feeling of otherness and you feel like yeah. you're left out. Um, yeah, I remember on my first day at King's some people had worn their school ties and <laughs> they'd all been to the same school. And the idea that someone from my school was at my university um, was just alien to me. I mean, it was just, I didn't know anybody. Mm. Um, and as with anything, university shapes you and you meet people from all different backgrounds. Mm. And I think at the criminal bar, that is a real, and in many other professions, it's a real skill. I mean, one moment I might be at a drinks reception with a high court judge and the next morning I might be in a cell with somebody who is withdrawing from heroin mm. and is in a very poor state. And I need to do well and be able to liaise with people across the full spectrum in order to do my job properly. Mm. Um, And so there's a real strength there in having a diverse background of all entrance to the bar. You need to be human first and foremost. Exactly. That's the most important thing. Yeah, definitely. And finally, what would be your ultimate kind of career goal? What would be the dream for you? So 
I hope that every day I wake up and still love it. I mean, that's my main goal. I hope that I'm never jaded by it. I hope I never wake up in the morning and think, oh, I've got to go to court today. I hope that I can keep my love for the job. Um, and if I can, I, I think that I'll be very fortunate indeed because at the moment I love it. Um, I look at some female uh, lawyers who've been appointed as judges in recent years. And for female judges under 50, it's now almost a 50-50 split of appointments, which is amazing. Um, and... There are some really inspiring female judges. And if I'd told my 15 year old self that one day I'd be sitting here saying maybe one day I could be a judge, I I wouldn't have believed you. But we'll see. I mean, I'd I'd love to um, keep climbing the profession and keep working hard and see where it takes me. Well, I believe in you. Oh, bless you. Thanks, Angelica. (laughs) Thank you so much uh, for coming to chat with me. If people would like to find out more about you or follow you on Twitter, where should they go? Um, So I've got a Twitter handle, which is Joanna2 underscores Hardy. There is a Joanna Hardy who hates me oh, <laughs> got a lot of tweets. Oh, she must have got so much yeah. press that's so about funny sexism at the bar um so yeah that's my main i'm not really two other schools i'm not really trendy on other social media <laughs> okay, so thank you so much Jana. you're so welcome thanks for having me thanks for listening to she started it with angelica malin if you've enjoyed this episode then don't forget to subscribe rate and review and you can follow me on twitter at jelly malin My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards... Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.